Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Cuban. I want you to turn in your Bible, if you can, to Genesis chapter 3. And when I say you can, you can if you have a Bible, which you should have a Bible because this is church and you should never come to church without your Bible. People say, well, I, I, I use my phone. Well, that's cool. I don't mind that. It's, it's, I like the feel and the smell of my Bible and the fact I get to write in it. There's just, I'm just old enough to think that, that this is cooler, right? So I'm always going to be using a paper Bible unless something crazy happens. Um, so anyway, turn to... Genesis chapter 3, and I want to talk to you today. We're going to continue our Christmas series, and just so you know, we're in a series. I didn't tell you what the series was last week, but the series is titled, He Is. And I want to talk to you over the next four weeks, including last week, about who Jesus is. If this is the Christmas time of year, then we are celebrating Christ Jesus and His birth. Amen? And so last week we started this series with a, a teaching titled The Forgotten Sacrifice. He is the forgotten sacrifice. And you're all, well, I didn't forget his sacrifice. You forgot, I think most of us forget, about the sacrifice of him actually coming to earth. We celebrate Easter and the sacrifice of his life and the burial and the death and the resurrection and all of that. And we should. Without that, our, our, our religion is invalid. Our confession of faith means nothing. We're still in our sin if Jesus Christ wasn't raised from the dead. And so this is something we should celebrate. And it is the greatest sacrifice. But I need us to understand during this time of year, more so you need to understand this time of year, that's not the only sacrifice he made. He stepped out of the perfection of heaven into the filth of earth so that you could have a Savior. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, that he didn't determine that being equal with God was something to be grasped, that he was willing to humble himself as a man, being birthed as a man, raised as a man, covered in flesh and blood like a man, so that he could die, even death upon a cross. And that's the text we learned from last week, was Philippians chapter 2, four, or 5 through 8, if you want to go back and review that. But last week we talked about how he is the forgotten sacrifice. We don't spend enough time talking about how significant this sacrifice is. This week I want to continue in the He Is series with a title, He Is the Cosmic Declaration. The Cosmic Declaration. If you're taking notes, I'd write that down. And of course I encourage everyone to do that. Before I talk about the Cosmic Declaration. I got some statistics I want to give you. I want to talk to you about some real life stuff. Since 3600 BC, which means 3600 years before Christ was born, till now, there has only been 292 years of peace where there was no conflict going on at all. That means there was 5,328 years of conflict, if you believe in the inter literal interpretation of Scripture, which I do. 
in that amount of time, there were 14,351 wars. Cost 3.664 billion lives and a property value loss equal to a golden belt around the world 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet thick. That's a lot of people and resources. Did you catch all of that? That in all of human history, there's only been 292 years of peace. That there has been a great cost of life and resources for conflict. But, there has always been a spiritual conflict that has always been costly. That spiritual conflict has cost us billions of lives. What is the cost of the spiritual conflict fought in the heavenly realms? None of us know. But I will tell you this, it's cost too much. According to world populations and all of those things, 29.2% of people on earth right now have never heard the name Jesus. Shame on us. 20, it's one third of the population almost has never heard the name of Jesus. If 150,685 people, according to the World Health Organization, die every day, that means, through simple calculation, that 44,000, I'm, I'm giving you numbers because I want numbers to weigh on you, 44,000 people die on the earth every day with no knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there is no post-death salvation opportunity. 44th, are you hearing me? You want to talk about what it costs? It costs 40, the spiritual conflict is costing us 44,000 people a day around the world. I want you to think about that because in less than two days, that means the population of Wilson County is gone. Two days after that, the next county. Six or eight days, well, probably a few more, maybe a month, the population of Metro Nashville, gone. Every single day, 44,000 people. We can do better. We've been called to do better. Amen? Our responsibility is to declare the gospel, and we haven't done it. Imagine the heartbreak of a God who knows that 144,000 people are going to hell that he never designed for us to be in in the first place. Hell wasn't designed for us, the sinner. Heaven was designed for the, for, for the devil and his angels, demons. But it's had to grow in size and grow in size and grow in size to accommodate those that have, should have never been there in the first place. Imagine the heartbreak of God who sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And 144,000 people a day are still going to hell. 
Imagine the heartbreak of God who created man in his very own image just to watch that image be corrupted by sin. I'm silent here on purpose because I want us to allow the number, the heartbreak of God weigh on us. We should have a heart that breaks for the things that break the heart of God. And I believe one is too many. 144,000 is absolutely ridiculous. 144,000 a day, I don't even know what to do with that number except put my feet to the pavement and declare that Jesus Christ is king to every person that I come into contact with. Amen? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? Or am I talking too loud or too fast? So what did God do about this? If this costs so much, what did He do? The Bible says He created a plan. Ephesians 1.4 Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him, He had a plan from the foundations of the earth, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. You know what that plan was? Jesus. It's the only message we have. Christ and Him crucified. Jesus is that plan. Let me read Genesis 3.15 to you. And I will put enmity. Let me, let me give you a little background. Man has fallen. He has committed sin. He has done what God told him not to do. At the behest and the temptation of the enemy. And God talks to the enemy and says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is God talking to the enemy. And I'm going to read it again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The first point I want to make today in this message that's titled The Cosmic Declaration, which is literally to say just a declaration made to all things created in the entire universe. God made a cosmic declaration. He made a cosmic declaration against sin in this statement. He says there will be enmity. What does enmity mean? This is what enmity means. Hostility, animosity, dissension, hatred. And those things to exist between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. Here's the, here's the rub. This message, this verse isn't just about the enemy and Jesus. This message is about the seed. All seeds. The seeds from the woman to Jesus. The seeds from Jesus till now. The seeds from now until the time that eternity starts and God takes us home. There should be enmity between us and the enemy. But sadly, too many of us have determined to sign a peace agreement where God intended for there to be no peace agreement. Darkness can't be associated with light, and yet we don't want to offend anyone, so we're not making the same de willing to make the same declaration against sin that God made. When we're called to make the same declaration 
of sin. Which means we're supposed to stand up and be the light in the darkness and say, that's wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. Living together unmarried is wrong. Any number of sins, lies, deception, murder, these things are wrong. But we refuse to say it because we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. Let me tell you, if I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings, it's going to be yours, not God's. We have signed a peace treaty where God intended for there to be no peace treaty. You know, Pastor Jim, that hurts my feelings. You have a problem with the word. You don't have a problem with me. And it should hurt your feelings. I think the word you're looking for is it makes you feel shameful. The problem with the world today, a portion of the problem with the world today, is we forgot what it means to be shameful. We shame. We, where we used to find shame, we find joy and pleasure. The things that would have caused us to lower our head five generations ago, two generations ago, one year ago, we don't find shame in anymore. You would have never told me, and it would have never happened, that two generations ago we would be willing to kill children seconds before they're born into this world. That a pastor could be a homosexual. You're meddling. I'm not meddling. The word of, word of God is meddling. All I'm doing is restating a declaration that God made. He made a cosmic declaration against sin. You're all, this doesn't sound much like a Christmas message. This is exactly why Christmas exists. Jesus Christ came into the world to show the purpose and the intent of God's declaration so that we could have a, the ability to walk according to the word. To make this same declaration without guilt. The question is, are you willing to stand with God? Or have you signed a peace treaty to stand with the enemy? Because it makes your life easier. I know, I'm meddling, ain't I, Mama? <laughs> because this seed includes us. Why do I spend so much time talking about us? Because this seed includes us. You are part of the seed. And there's a promise in this 315 of conflict between seeds. So I have to equip you. I need to let you know there should be conflict. If there's not conflict in your life, you're, you're probably not living like you should. If you're not being tempted, you're probably not living like you should. If nobody's bothering you, poking you, or prodding you, guess what? You're not in the fight that you should be in. Well, that's hard. It's supposed to be hard. Whoever grabbed a hold of you, hugged you after you come up off your face on the altar or wherever you gave your life to the Lord, looked at you and said, your life is going to be perfect now, is a liar and damned to hell. Because that's just not true. Your life is never going to be perfect until perfect comes back and takes you with him. The enemy has his own seed. God has his own seed. And there should be enmity 
between the two. John 8, 44. The enemy has his own seed. You are of the father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand on the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks, a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. God has his own seed too. John 1.12 Just as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Can I tell you, there's two kind of people in the world. I don't care what the... What everybody, what anybody tells you, what the race baiters tell you, the homosexual proponents tell you, I don't care what anybody tells you. There's two kind of people in the world. Those that belong to God and those that don't belong to God. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what your financial demographic is. I don't care what part of town you live in. There's two kind of people in the world. There's two seeds in this world. Those that belong to God and those that don't belong to God. But there's a point of grace and a point of warning in this. First, the point of grace. Where it talks about God's seed. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. The point of grace is that we were all children of the enemy at one time. Everybody loves John 3.16, right? Most everybody memorizes it. You ever read 17 and 18? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not to condemn them, because they were condemned already. You were born condemned. That's the point of grace, that God determined to send Jesus Christ so that that wouldn't hold power over your life. But there's a point of, not just grace there, there's a point of warning there. Because Hebrews chapter 2, 1 tells us that we are to pay attention to what we've been given so that we don't drift away. People will tell you, man, once God's got a hold of you, He's not going to let go. That's true. He's not going to let you go. But it doesn't mean you can't walk away. You have to pay attention. You guys ever been swimming in a pool or sitting on a pool thing, floaty? You take a nap, you fall asleep, and you find out you're, you're on the other side of the pool. You didn't do anything to get over there. You didn't do anything. You didn't kick your legs. You just ended up over there. This is how easy it is to drift away. That's a point of warning. If you're going to fight this fight, if you're going to stand under the declaration that is the war that God proposed against the enemy, you better be conscious. We used to call it in the military, keep your head on a swivel. Because the enemy's coming. And although he should be, he's not scared of you. But he is scared of the God that's in you. Whew. I'm about to start preaching. That's exciting. Amen? This is the beauty of who God is. But the enemy is coming. So pay attention. The Word tells us that there will be sifting of God's people. He did it to Peter. You don't think He's going to do it to you? People are all, what, what's sifting mean? That means He's going to turn you upside down, flip your world crazy, shake the change out of your pockets, whatever He can do to get your eyes off Jesus. And it almost worked for Peter. But praise God for the Holy Spirit that was the manifest presence of God for Peter. 
that provoked him back into a relationship. It doesn't mean the enemy's not going to try. The Word tells us he's going to try. Be prepared for the sifting. The Word tells us that the enemy still looks to devour those who belong to God. The woman's seed. He's got to have permission from God to do that, though, and from us to do that, though. Do you know the enemy isn't omnipotent? Which means he isn't all-powerful. He isn't omniscient, which means he's not in all places. People crack me up, man. They're all, man, the devil's really on me today. Look, bro, there's people out there that are holding crusades where hundreds of thousands of people are getting saved. If the devil's not present everywhere and has to be somewhere, he's probably sifting that dude. He may not even know your name. I, I don't want to minimize your self-importance. Now, that's not to say he hasn't sent something to irritate you and sift you. But some of us give the enemy too much credit. Devil's, devil's on me like he's on Jesus. Shut up. Devil ain't on you like he's on Jesus. Most of your problems have nothing to do with the enemy at all. You just make bad, bad decisions. You're all, the Lord's, the, the, the enemy's really attacking my finances. No, man, you got drunk three nights in a row, can't pay your rent. Lord ain't attacking your finances, you did. Oh, I'm meddling again. Job 1.7 says, The Lord said to Satan, Where do you come from? From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around it. First Peter, what is he walking around doing? First Peter 5.8 tells us, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Keep your head on a swivel. Pay attention to what's around you. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Keep your head on a swivel. Can I tell you, I, I, find, I find a little comfort in 1 Peter 8, 5, 8. Well, how do you find comfort in that? Because the Bible doesn't say your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion. He says he prowls around like a roaring lion. Jesus pulled this cat's teeth a long time ago. You're letting a toothless cat freak you out. But pay attention. Because there's enmity between God's seed and the seed of the enemy. Amen? And as frightening as that could be, it doesn't have to be. Because in God's cosmic declaration against sin, Jesus is the manifestation of that declaration. The second half of verse 15 reads like this. And between you and your seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Remember, keep it in context. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the enemy. He says, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel find hope in this Yo, how am I going to find hope in that because I want you to pay attention to verbiage I tell you we read our Bible too fast 
When he's talking about the seed, like I've said multiple times, he's talking about from the time he made that declaration until Jesus comes back, including Jesus. The devil is going to bruise Jesus' heel. Which means there's going to be some injury there. He's going to bruise your heel. Which means there's going to be some injury there. People are, he didn't injure Jesus. Y'all haven't heard the passion story. But you know the good thing about a bruise on a heel? It goes away. It's nothing but a mere irritation. There's no eternal consequence for a bruise on a heel. Death has no sting for a bruise on a heel. But let me tell you what we've been promised. We've been promised that through constant pursuit, relationship with Jesus, the works of Jesus Christ himself, that the enemy's head will be bruised, which means death will come to him, which means there is an eternal consequence for what he's done and what he's trying to do, that he, death is coming for him, that through the seed of that woman, through Christ Jesus, empowered by us in the Holy empowered by the Holy Spirit in us, we have the ability. Yeah, you might be bruised. You might be knocked down. You might be hurting a little bit. But it's just your heel. God's going to deliver you. God's going to lift you up. He's going to hold you up. He's going to be the rock-solid foundation that the Word of God promises that He will be. He's going to be the strong tower and the fortress that you can run to. He's going to be the wing that covers you in your time of need and protection. He's going to be the one that causes the enemy to fall at your, fall at your right side. Don't worry about it because temptation is for today eternity is forever and as seeds of the woman in christ jesus we have the promise that our eternity is secure man that's so good mm. praise the lord This is the fatal blow that Jesus ultimately causes to the enemy. That he will be cast into hell one day and won't be our problem. And in this fatal blow, our victory has been made complete. In this fatal blow, given by the seed of the woman, birthed as a child in a manger, our victory is made complete. Let me read you something out of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 reads like this. If I can find it, I think it's somewhere in the Old Testament. It's not, it's in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to start with verse 12. Talking about your victory being complete. Having been buried with him in baptism. Him being capital H, Jesus. In him you were also raised up. Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I know that's some big words. Let me tell you what that's just saying. When you were dead to sin. When you didn't understand the consequence of your sin. When you were living for hell. When you were as filthy as you could ever be. Hence the uncircumcision of your flesh. When you were still out of covenant. He made you alive together with Him. Because Christ is alive, you are alive. Because the victory that Christ had, you have victory. Mm, that's good right there. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. 
How many transgressions? Now some of them. Wait a minute. That can't be right. Y'all don't know me. Y'all don't know what I've done. God, God can't forgive this thing. But what about this thing? I bring this up because this is how y'all are thinking. This is how so many of you think. I can't believe that God could forgive me for that. Let me tell you, the blood of Jesus is more powerful than anything that you've done. And there's not a thing that you've done that caught God by surprise. And there's not a thing that you've done that God didn't know you would do the day he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for you. Stop living in that guilt. Stop living in that torment. God knew you. God knows you. God will always know you. All transgression. Having canceled out the certificate of debt, which means death. Our debt is death. What we owe is death, according to Romans. Right? And so he canceled out that certificate of debt. It, consisting of decrees against us, which means allegations against us. Which was hostile to us, which made us look bad. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Man, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Let me tell you why that's beautiful. Because he wanted to. It's beautiful not because he had to, but because he decided to. It's beautiful that because before you were born, before you committed your first sin, after you committed your second, third, fourth, twentieth, twenty thousandth, Jesus knows you, knew you, loves you, and decided to die for you. And forgive you all of your transgressions. All of your transgressions. You know what makes God, in my mind, one of the things that makes God so beautiful? That those things he forgives, he forgets all, he forgives always. Those things that he forgets, he forgets always. I'm just telling you, stop living in the guilt. Because when the Bible says that he removed my sin from me, as far as from the east to the west, it's exactly what it means. The east and the west can never touch each other again. Can never touch each other. No matter where you go, there's always an east and it's always a west and they're always separate in an opposite direction. That he's thrown your sin into the sea, often called the sea of forgetfulness. That he's placed your sin behind his back according to the word of God. You know what I can see behind me right now? Nothing. This is the assurance that we have. That in all of this, all of these things, God's made a way for redemption for us. He's bought us back from the slave market of sin with the power and the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He not only redeemed us, He substituted Himself for us. Do you know you deserve death? Jesus said, I don't want you to die. I want to spend eternity with you. The same God that could have gone and wiped us all out and started over decided not to. Decided instead to become sin, become a curse, so that you could be without curse and without sin. But not only did he take your place in crucifixion, he took your place in regards to the wrath of God. He took the wrath of God for you. 
Might I add the perfect wrath of God? I've tried in the five years we've been here to define what that is, what perfect anything looks like, and I can't do it. You know why? Because my finite mind can't, can't understand infinite perfection. But I've seen my wife wrathful. And I figure perfect wrath got to be better than that. And I don't even want none of that. And Jesus took it all. Not only did he atone for us, substitute himself in our place and took on God's wrath, but then he justified us. All of this according to the text. And because I don't want to use religious words, this is what justification means. This means that we showed up for court. And Jesus was standing there. And he said, we're going to drop all charges. And most of us would be all, right on, that's awesome. But that's only half of what justification is. I had a buddy of mine some years ago on his application had asked, have you ever been arrested? And he said, no. He checked no. Well, the fact of the matter is he had been arrested, but they dropped the charges. And so he figured it didn't show on his record, so he, he checked no and didn't get the job because he lied on his application. You know why? Because his reputation was still jacked up. Even though he wasn't guilty of a crime, his reputation was still jacked up. Jesus said, look, I'm going to do, do, do you a solid. I'm going to drop all charges. I'm going to drop your arrest record. It's going to be as though you were never charged with a crime in the first place. That's the true weight of justification. And I don't know about y'all, man, but I've committed some heinous acts in my day that I'm ashamed still to talk about. But the fact that God loved me enough to do all of those things for me doesn't necessarily remove my memory of those things. It removes my guilt and shame from those things and causes me to want to worship Him. In this fatal blow, He demonstrates the completeness of His victory. Not only that we're secure in victory, but that there's a completeness in it. The same set of texts in Colossians 2, verse 15, it says this. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Like we read past this, man, and most of us just kind of get past it. That's cool. I don't know what that means. Let me tell you, the readers of this text, the original readers or hearers of this text would have understood exactly what he was talking about. You know the problem is? We don't parade our enemies and defeat in front of us anymore. Spiritually or physically. We beat them and then we try to prop them up and make them feel better about losing. That's not how they did it back then. This isn't what Jesus did for the enemy. He beat him and wants him to know he's beat. More importantly, he wants you to know he's beat. I found a, a, a true historical account of what it means to parade or make a public spectacle of a defeated foe. There's a story in history about the Roman general Paulus, P-A-U-L-U-S, returning from war in Persia. And he won. 
And he had a victory parade. I'm just going to kind of read this to you to show you the grandeur of what it meant to make a public display of a beaten foe. Before the general entered the Roman capital, he had scaffolding erected down the main avenue so everyone could see. So he built like roadside stadiums so people could see that, that the victory was real. On the first day on that avenue, 259 chariots were filled with plunder that were taken from the enemy and traveled down that avenue. On the second day, innumerable wagons bore the armor of the Macedonians, showing that they destroyed their military might, followed by 3,000 chariots carrying enemy silver and 750 vessels, showing that he took away their resources and their ability to ever create war against them again. On the third day, the captives proceeded by 20 sacrificial oxen. Next, Macedonian gold. Then the defeated king's chariot. This is a three-day spectacle. Then the defeated king's chariot, along with his personal crown and armor, were marched down that street. Then the king's servants, begging for mercy, then the king's own children. Finally, the defeated king dressed completely in black, followed by an endless line of prisoners. This is what it means to make a public spectacle of your enemy. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. This is what Jesus did as the manifestation of God's cosmic declaration against sin. To tell you that your victory is secure, that you know that, that his victory is complete, that he sees you, he loves you, he desires to be with you, and he's done everything necessary to show you that love. Man, that's good. But it messed the Roman, it messed the Jews up. Because the Jews, this is how they expected him to come in, not go out. They expected him to come out as a general on a horse. Instead, he went out, he came in like a king in a manger. And he did it for you. He did it for us. Not only was Jesus the manifestation of God's cosmic declaration against sin, but in, in, and it's the last thing I'll say today, we stand firm in the victory of that declaration. We get the privilege of standing firm in the victory of that declaration. Can I tell you, the enemy is still very much real and alive and capable. There will be seeds after our seed, probably, unless Jesus comes back first. But he'll still have to deal with the enemy because he won't be cast in until the end. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who delivered them, deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beasts and the false prophets are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So for right now, the spiritual fight is still real for us. So we have an obligation to this fight. We have an obligation to this cosmic declaration against sin. You know what that is? Stand firm.
and know that his victory is assured. And secondly, to hold dear to the life that you've been given and grow the kingdom of God. One of my, one of my favorite verses in Scripture because it's one of the first ones I learned because it's, it, was, it seemed manly to me is Matthew eleven twelve. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. And men like that because we're all, ah, we're, we're, we're supposed to be warriors and violent by nature. But can I tell you, violence in its traditional sense isn't what this word means. This is what this means. It means to be full of eagerness and zeal. Do you know who takes the, the kingdom of God? You know who progresses the kingdom of God? Those that hold on to the declaration that God made, the manifestation of what Jesus accomplished, and walk in eagerness and zeal with it. Hold it tightly. Tell other people about it. We have a responsibility to tell people about Jesus. There's a reason why I started out with a bunch of boring statistics nobody wants to hear. Because 144,000 people are going to hell every day. It's time we start holding on to the gift that we were given at Christmas with an eagerness and a zeal like we've never had in telling people about what we have. Amen? I was telling my the first service, I, a lot of times I'm not sure how a service will end. Sometimes I, I know it's going to end in an altar call. Sometimes I know it's going to end in a communion or just a closing prayer. Today, I didn't know what to do until the end of the first service. And this is what I want to do. It's our responsibility to declare that which God declared. To stand in the gap for the people that haven't heard yet. For the people that have heard that haven't accepted yet. To grow the kingdom of God and progress the kingdom of God. So this is what I'm going to ask of you. I'm not going to ask you to do anything crazy. I'm going to ask, if you have anybody in your family that doesn't know Jesus, that doesn't understand the significance and the truth of the declaration God made by sending His Son Jesus to us on Christmas, anybody out there lost that still needs that relationship, I'm going to ask that you stand in the gap for them and pray for them, believing that the Holy Spirit will convict them and bring someone into their life to show them how horribly necessary a relationship with Jesus is. If you have a person like that in your life or in your family, would you stand on their behalf? Let us pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. God, we thank you that you love us. God, I look at so many people standing, which I wouldn't expect anything less. God, we all know someone that doesn't know who you are. But it breaks my heart. God, it breaks mine because I, feel, I know that it breaks yours. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us 
there are so many people that either haven't heard the message or that we've been nervous about telling the message to because of the intimacy that we have with them. God, I ask first that you break down any barriers between us and them that would cause us to not speak boldly and confidently into their life. Allow us to stand in the gap for them as the power of your Holy Spirit, even now as we're speaking, begins to overtake them. Overtake them to the degree that they, are, they find themselves pinned to whatever chair they may be sitting in. That they find themselves face first on the ground, unable to be moved by the awesomeness of who you are and what your son Jesus has done for us. God, I ask, and we, if you have a name, I would ask that you call that name out. God, we pray on their behalf, believing that you desire that all men be saved. And we know that anything we ask according to your will, you hear us. And because you hear us, we have what we've asked for. I can't imagine anything more in your will than to know that your son Jesus died for everyone and everyone accepted that message. God, we pray, we thank you for the opportunity to pray. We thank you for the expectation that we have. We thank you for the salvation of our lost loved one that's coming. God, whether they've never been saved at all or if they've, like we said, drifted away, you're more than capable of bringing them home, and we ask that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.